Welcome to the Chamber of Musical Curiosities, a podcast exploring the world in and around Music Aviva Australia. Hi, I'm Paul Kilday, Artistic Director of Music Aviva. Welcome to the podcast. I'm here today with Genevieve Lacey. And Genevieve, to call you a recorder player is ever so slightly missing the point. <laughs> and I thought of this recently, watching the rather charming and, and beautiful, but also very, very kind of personal documentary that you made, which was screened on the ABC in August. And it was a, an intimate portrait of not simply an artist and her evolution, but also the shape and psychological structure of the trajectory almost of an artistic practice. I think the question I want to ask you is that we don't know this at age 25, what our artistic practice is going to be. And this film deals very much with this tightrope, a lovely image that's included in the film, this tightrope that you found yourself walking, which was between the virtuosic soloist and somehow an instinct deep inside you that the way that you wanted to perform and create music was somehow more complex than just simply the soloist turning up and performing this handful of, of virtuosic works. Do you feel now that at this stage of your life and career that you are actually practicing the way that you want to and performing and creating art the way that you want to? I think I get closer to that all the time. But I suppose if I've learned anything along the way, I've learned that a life in art is one of constant evolution. And you're always responding to your own changed internal landscape as well as the world in which you work. So there was a time where that tightrope of concerto playing was my world and was completely consuming and I was in the thrall of that. And I think that at that stage in life that was right and good, but I couldn't stay there. So at the moment I suppose my main focus is on working collaboratively with other people, all sorts of people, whether they're musicians or artists of all kinds or scientists or people I meet who inspire me and who somehow can help me to shape and bring to life an idea that I'm preoccupied with at the time. So now that feels like where I need to be, but I'd be almost willing to bet that in 10 years I'll be somewhere else. (laughs) And the idea of the pertinent age or just the right age for one to discover this. Uh, I suppose it changes depending upon the artist. But what was it in your journey, which again in this beautiful film comes across so strongly, what do you think or was it a combination of events that made you think, yes, I want to step off this particular tightrope um, at this particular age? And I suppose my question is, is it an age thing or is it simply a developmental question? It's a great question. When I observe my colleagues and my friends, I think the age differs for different people. So some people that I know made that discovery much earlier than I did. I feel like in a lot of ways I was actually quite slow to it. And then I have other colleagues who are discovering it later again. So I think it's partly tied to age, but I think it's also very much tied to circumstance. And for me, there was always this aching split between the conventional heritage that goes with my instrument, which is European, and the place that I call home. And I needed to resolve that. 
Talk a little bit more about the conventional expectations of the instrument, because there'll be a lot of listeners who will will be very comfortable saying, I know what the conventional repertory and career connotations are of a piano or a violin. But what are the ones that you grew up with regarding this instrument that you played from such a young age? Well, the lovely thing about playing the recorder is you don't have so clearly a defined career path as you do when you play a violin or a piano. And I think for a lot of recorder players, that's a source of great sadness. For me, that's been a source of great joy and discovery and freedom and possibility, really. So the interesting thing about the recorder is that I suppose the notion of a professional virtuoso player is one that was made up in the 20th century. It didn't exist historically. And we owe that to an extraordinary musician called Franz Bruggen who really brought this instrument to life. And, of course, he wasn't the only one. There were a whole series of players doing this. But he was very much at the forefront of creating a contemporary life as a recorder player. And for him that meant unearthing and playing beautiful historical repertoire and it also meant collaborating closely with composers to create new works. And he became, I suppose, the role model for what might be possible with the instrument. Here in Australia, again, there are a handful of extraordinary pioneers on the instrument, all of whom had different desires for the instrument and and for their life in music. So I suppose I looked to a whole lot of different people as role models, all of whom offered different possibilities. But Yeah, I think it really has always been to my advantage that there has been no one clear path for what you might do with the recorder. And I suppose as I've got older, the lack of clarity has been something that I've embraced more and more. It might be worthwhile saying exactly when Bruggen was at the height of his career and pioneering these wonderful excavations into old rep because it interests me, of course, because the other person who was doing something similar was a great hero of mine, Vonda Landowska, mm. who was working with modern contemporary composers on a modern instrument, it has to be said, but at mm. the same time doing these fantastic archaeological forays into the 16th and 17th centuries. So I'd love that. And how much of it was Bruggen's almost reapplying or reappropriating repertory that had been taken over by other instruments, flute or other woodwind instruments, and giving it back to the recorder. He certainly did that. But he also, as you said, unearthed and excavated a lot of treasures that had been buried or lost. And also he played, you know, he was an extraordinary musician and an extraordinarily charismatic communicator. And so he was able to give I suppose a kind of gravitas to a whole lot of repertory that had been deemed second rate or also, quite frankly, hadn't been played particularly well in the public domain since the 18th century. So he was really able to embody and give a voice to a whole lot of things that literally had been lost. So I guess he was doing this, he was doing it really later than Landowska, wasn't he? It's, yes. I always think of, of Bruggen and that sort of handful of early music hero pioneers like Gustav Leonhardt and then, of course, in England, the Dolmetsch family and the whole sort of resurgence of interest in 
in history, which of course came about for so many reasons. I mean, that's another whole conversation, isn't it? But the kind of Arcadian ideal of recreating a past and a type of music making that was somehow pure and uh, somehow like the whole idea of the Renaissance consort and things being equal and shared and collegiate and intimate as a kind of an antidote to what was seen as the overblown excesses of romanticism that then landed in the world wars, basically. So music, this craving for something that was simpler and purer, I think, was a really important part of the whole early music movement, as well as a bunch of maverick, visionary, curious people who started discovering these old instruments and this old repertory and just saying, well, this is fantastic music, we should play it. But I I think there were lots of things going on simultaneously there. I like the fact that you link him with um, Gustav Leonhardt because it would seem as though those two, as pioneers of the kind of explosion, if you like, in early music and historically informed performance in the 1980s and 90s, they somehow still managed to keep their heads up and their very early discoveries and and the very early experiments in how to think about this music and perform it weren't discredited by the subsequent generations of performers who were also very interested in this part of the industry and and this type of repertory. Yeah, they weren't discredited, but in some ways I feel like it's a pretty typical generational pattern, for me at least, in that if they were the parent generation, they were really radical and they were really interested in going to places that people hadn't gone before. And I think they were very, as well as being extremely scholarly, they were in many ways very intuitive, expressive musicians and I think that it was a swing with the next generation and, and if we could, you know, these are extremely broad brushstrokes, but I think almost as a, a reaction to that, the next generation became quite obsessed with doctrines and treatises and actually being able to codify what this music might have sounded like and how it was played and what instruments it was played on and how it was tuned. And so there was a time where people became quite obsessed with facts, with empirical evidence. And again, that goes hand in hand with what was happening in the world at that time. And I like to think that then there's a next generation where things are a little bit more fluid again. So I would agree that that Bruggen and and Lanhart certainly have never been discredited, but I think there was a kind of a, a phase where people got a little bit obsessed with doctrine. Yeah, and you and I have talked about your understanding of different modes, different tuning systems. Like, So you have all this knowledge because you, after all, were a student of the early 90s when this was a very hot flame. But it doesn't dictate to the point that you can now slip into those clothes very happily when you need to, but it doesn't dictate how you think about a piece of music, does it? No, and it never has. I've I've always been heretical in that sense, in that I've always been interested in the experience of music now rather than the recreation of an imagined past. And I have deep respect for scholars and musicologists and colleagues who wear those clothes, to use your analogy, all the time, who actually live in that world and whose first language it is, whereas for me it's one of many dialects that I speak. So I I always like to try to be careful about that because 
that's not been my way, but I, I have a lot of respect for people who who have gone a much longer journey down that path than I ever did. I think this idea of speaking with a different accent is interesting on a number of levels. One is the one you touched on a moment ago, uh, speaking with an Australian accent, but being a student overseas and working out what your relationship is with Australia and how best to reconcile that. But there's another part of it, and I think this speaks to what you were just talking about regarding early music or historically informed performance, and that is the way that you look at the world. And I think I'd love you to talk a little bit about even your doctoral studies. It's something you don't ever really talk about, um, I know. But it, it just even the way that you approach that as a fairly young person was indicative of a very different way of thinking about this career and life of yours. Well, I guess what I was doing in those doctoral studies was I was really interested in the fact that when I went to university, I studied two things simultaneously. So I did a music degree, and in my music degree, I was studying both recorder and oboe. And then I was also doing a degree in English literature. And at that time in the academy, as you say, in the 90s, not only was the flame of early music hot, But the other flame that was extremely hot was the flame of cultural studies, literary studies, literary theory, women's studies, queer studies. It was a time where there was a real re-evaluation of what we consider to be universal truth and what we consider the canon to be. And so the work that I was doing in the English department was at the radical end of that spectrum. And it was fundamentally questioning what is this notion of truth and does truth actually reside in the text? Is there a God in the text and should we still be worshipping that God? Or in fact, is the text a product of a person who is a product of their context and could it also be true that what we bring to that text actually informs the text as well? So I was being brought up into diametrically opposed intellectual ways of thinking, which I loved, but also was quite fundamentally bewildering. And that really came to a head when I went to Europe because I went to the heart of early music. Like I went to Mecca itself because I had fallen in love particularly with medieval Renaissance music and I felt like I wanted to go to the source of that. And uh, the years that I spent then in Europe right in the depths of that, really to me brought to a head this kind of crisis of where is the truth in this or more pertinently perhaps what is my truth with this? What do I think this music is and how do I want to use it and who do I think it's for? And so that sort of unravelled a whole series of questions and my doctoral studies were very much about trying to tease that out, trying to work out, well, why have we got so obsessed with this thing called early music and this whole idea which was very strong at the time, this whole idea of authenticity, of recreating a composer's intentions. So they're the, they're the words of early music and then the, the world that I'd grown up in in the English department said, well, we can never know the author's intentions and what is this recreation thing anyway? So really it was me just trying to navigate my way through that and work out, well, what do I think and why? And that really led me to the heart of, well, what does it mean to be a contemporary Australian woman playing this music and what is my relationship with it and with history in the past 
which led me very much to the question of what is actually my relationship with the here and now. That's a nice point to take a quick word from our supporters. Music Aviva would like to say thanks for the support and ongoing partnership of West Farmers Arts. West Farmers Arts understand the vital contribution that the arts make to the communities in which we live and work, bringing people and art together. Talking about having those dual approaches in these two faculties is an amazing burden in some senses for a young musician and thinker. And I I know now that this is partly why you have such a commitment towards young artists in Australia, young musicians in Australia, not least of all because of the very beautiful scheme that we have at Music Aviva called the Future Makers. I'd love you to tell us a little bit about the origin of that and why you were so passionate that it was missing in the Australian landscape and necessary for the future of this landscape. Well, the origin story for that program comes from dear and visionary philanthropists who have a long relationship with Music Aviva, and that's the Berg family, particularly Tony and Carol Berg, whose family have been entwined with Music Aviva since its very origins. And in true Berg fashion, at a significant moment, I think it was the 70th anniversary of Music Aviva, they said, well, it's wonderful to celebrate this, but what does the next 70 years look like? Who is going to populate that? How are we going to take care of them? How do we identify them? And so that began a series of conversations both internally within the organisation and externally. And to cut a long story short, I ended up in a kind of consultancy role with the organisation for some years, working closely with a handful of key staff members, particularly at that time with Tim Matthews, And then when Tim moved on to another job with Catherine Kemp, trying to think really deeply about what a young musician needs. What do they need in order to survive this world, to thrive in it and to shape it so that they're not merely receiving what they think their tradition or their role is, but they're actually actively shaping it. And that, of course, brought about a whole lot of very passionate conversations both within and and without the organisation. And you ask why I feel so strongly about it. Oh, for so many reasons, Paul. I mean, I suppose primarily because I feel like I've been so extraordinarily privileged through my life in that many people have been very generous to me. Many people have given me advice, have given me opportunities, have been either official or unofficial mentors and guardian angels to me. And I'm very much at a stage in my life where I would love to play that role for other people. So there was a sort of a fundamental sense of, yes, it's time for me to do this now, but also a very fundamental sense that unless as a community we think very seriously about what kind of a future we want to have, And unless we see it as our job to create that, then I can very easily see an art form that is so dear to me dwindling and disappearing. And I would hate that. So it was a very kind of strong role of advocacy and activism about how we take this art form forward. It's wonderful. And and I have the great privilege, of course, of stepping into your very large shoes 
but take the responsibility very seriously because I completely agree. And you and I have talked about this and similar things for a very long time. Genevieve, I said at the beginning that to call you a recorder player is really missing the point. And I really believe that. And I'd love you to talk a little bit about the anatomy of collaboration. Because when I think of you, I think of you as just an astonishingly fertile collaborator. You touched on that some moments ago, saying that it's not always musicians, it's not always the most obvious person in the room. And so I'd love you to talk about some of those collaborations and how they came about. Because the process is a very long one. And it starts, as I know with you, with just this initial idea that you then scratch at for a while and then kind of give it flesh. And the giving of it the flesh is is rather wonderful. And then there's a legacy of it. And it's often a legacy of relationships. So perhaps talk a little bit about collaboration and why it's so dear to you and how it defines you so much. And then perhaps also talk a little bit about some of the collaborations that we're thinking about and working on at the moment at Music Aviva. I suppose I love to collaborate because it's not just about the pleasure of being part of a team, but it's a genuine belief that I have that you have most fun in life when you are the person in the room who knows the least. It's so fantastic to be surrounded by brilliant, gifted, generous people who on a daily basis ask you questions that completely alter your perspective on not just the project that you're working on, but how you want to live your life. And also collaborators whose brilliance is almost frightening enough that every night you go home and you have to try to remake yourself and you have to constantly learn a whole set of skills that you didn't have previously, not in order just to try to keep up, but to feel like you have a right to be there. So there's something about collaboration for me that's deeply entwined with this insatiable quest for growth, I suppose, for learning more and for becoming something other than what you think you are. So I suppose your question about the anatomy of collaboration, I think a really essential trait in anyone who who wants to take that seriously is a, a willingness to be small and a willingness to be incredibly porous. I think if you're going to be a good collaborator, you have to be willing to let go all the time. And that's a really interesting process. And I think over time, like with most things, if you do it more, you get a little, little bit better at understanding kind of where the boundaries are, where you need to hold firm and where you need to let go. And I, I certainly wouldn't say that I've mastered that, but I feel like I'm more at ease with it. I, th- I suppose another thing about an aptitude for collaboration for me is also about a willingness to stay for quite some time not knowing what something is going to be. So I think there's a huge amount of instinct involved and trust involved where you invite people into a project or a conversation. And I think that's something that I've definitely got better at is actually not pinning things down too early, being willing to sit in that very uncomfortable space where people are saying, what is it? How long is it? What's your elevator pitch? Can we please have the marketing materials and saying, I understand you need all those things, but we don't know yet. And it's really powerful to learn that those things take time and that that sort of dual relationship between risk and trust 
in terms of the sorts of collaborative projects that I've done, they've been many and varied from incredibly privileged scenarios where I've been invited into an Indigenous community and a family in particular to help carry the story of one of their great elders, one of their great family members, a project around the life and legacy of Albert Nawajira. Which was astonishingly powerful. It was just a beautiful, beautiful presentation and, and profound as well for us working out who we are as Australians. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Well, I feel like that was one of my apprenticeships and I really sat at the feet of masters there. So I was working with a company called Big Art run by the genuinely visionary and extremely maverick Scott Rankin and watching that company work and understanding a lot about risk and not knowing. And also you spoke earlier about the length of collaborative projects. That was a beautiful thing to learn in that company too, that if you're going to do something properly and seriously, it's going to take years, not months, but years. So, yeah, from projects like that that for me were early iterations of what it means to be a creative collaborator through to I suppose, you know, I spent the last seven months not being able to play live, not being able to tour, do the things that have been a big part of my life, which has been... um, well, it's been many things, but it's meant that I've been working really hard at at four new large-scale projects, which I think will come to life probably over the next 10 years. But it's been really interesting to have a window of time where I could just work solidly at that because normally my life is much more of a juggling one between playing, recording, the kind of advising, mentoring, leading that I do, and then this collaborative work. So it's been really interesting to just work in this way. Yeah. One of these projects is going to come to life much sooner than 10 years, um, I'm delighted to say, and I'd love you to talk about it a little. First of all, perhaps as a way of introducing it, uh, talk about one of your firm old friends and collaborators, Marshall McGuire, and then lead into what you're working on. And it's going to have a few different lives, and I'd, I'd love you to talk about those lives and how you're thinking about it at the moment. Yeah, well, this is a project called Bauer. Well, currently called Bauer, you know, all good projects change their titles multiple times, but <laughs> this one seems to be sticking. And it's been commissioned by Zian and Carillo Gantner with support from Ulrika Klein and Eucaria. And yes, at its centre is my dear friend and, and colleague, Marshall McGuire. And even though this project feels as though it's going to emerge quite quickly, it does come out of a 20-year relationship And that's often the case with good collaborations is that it's as though the seeds are sown and are quietly germinating over many, many years before suddenly an opportunity arises where you think, oh, I'd actually been thinking about that without knowing I was thinking about it for 10 years. So this feels very much like that kind of a project. And Marshall and I have played together in so many different contexts We've had some incredible adventures together. He's a beautifully open-minded person and musician and he's one of those rare colleagues that I can play 12th century music with, a new work by Lisa Lim and pretty much anything in between. And not a whole lot of musicians have that kind of breadth and feel at ease in so many different styles. So that's something I really treasure, working with Marshall. 
I love seeing you together because you've accumulated a, a shorthand almost in the way that you communicate. And so much of it is instinctive. And mm. and so that does allow you finally to capitalize on 20 years of investment. And it's an artistic investment. It's also mm. an investment in friendship. And all of this mm. comes across on stage. I'm embarrassed to say that I am not a bird lover. And so I, of course, when you first said that this was the working title and, and I had to think of the bower bird and I, I didn't know what its distinction was um, as a bird. And you said to me at one point that this was a project slightly about safety and sanctuary and that it seemed necessary this year of all years to have that sense of sanctuary. So perhaps you could talk a little bit about that and also the repertory and how you've landed on the repertory. Well, I am a bird lover, Paul. I know that. <laughs> and birds find their way into so many of my projects. More and more as I get older, not just birds, but the natural world in general. And yes, it does feel like this is a year where ideas of sanctuary, of solace, of respite, of hope, of building something out of beauty, out of sound and light feels extraordinarily important because so much of our world has been shattered and I suppose so many things that have been problematic for a long time that we allowed ourselves to uh, think were somehow below the surface have become devastatingly apparent over the last while. So the idea of trying to make something out of the rubble seems really important and to think very carefully about what materials you want to use. And so for me, all the repertory comes out of relationships. And, and to be honest, that's how my artistic, that's how my whole life works. It's it's based on relationships of trust, really. So Marshall and I have reached through our 20 years of playing and thought about historical music that we have an affinity for. Interestingly, at the moment, when we look at the repertory list, there are actually only a couple of things that we've been playing a long time. Most of it is new to us, but a lot of it is related to other things that we know and love. But that somehow felt important too. It feels like it's been a year of letting go of things. So in terms of repertory, we at the moment we think we might go back as far as the 14th century. We'll certainly spend a decent amount of time in the 16th and 17th, early 18th centuries, and in terms of that early music, most of it is the kind of early music that I absolutely love and that suits our instruments so well in that it's music built on repetitive patterns. So what in music terms gets called a ground bass or basically a, a series of chords or harmonies or simply a series of bass notes that get repeated multiple times over which something intricate is built. And to me that sits beautifully with the way that the bowerbird makes his nest and it is a he who makes the nest because the whole making of the nest is, is about trying to seduce a mate basically. So our old repertory basically takes the idea of simple patterns that become extravagant, ornate, and really beguiling. And then, really, Bauer is a commissioning project. So we've commissioned four new works from artists we know and love. We've commissioned a whole series of arrangements as well. And where Marshall and I both work 
across many different domains musically. And so the composers that we've chosen are similarly diverse in their styles and their backgrounds. From Andrea Keller, who's best known as a jazz pianist, but that also does her a disservice. She's an extraordinary composer who works in many different realms. Eki Veltheim, who's one of the most versatile musicians that I know. Brie van Rijk, who works as a drummer in the indie rock world as well as a composer, a conceptual sound artist, a really interesting woman. And then Madeleine Flynn and Tim Humphrey, who always work as a duo and for me are probably our most important conceptual artists in the country working in sound. So wildly different practices, backgrounds, and to go to each of these marvellous people and say what would you like to do with a recorder and a harp within this idea of creating a sanctuary that you know the results are fantastic they are so different i can't wait for this tour i can't wait to be able to take you to different cities and to see the different responses from people to this very beautiful idea this very beautiful concept in the same way that I'm so happy that it brings together some of your favourite people, um, harpist Marshall McGuire, Jim Atkins, the wonderful sound designer, um, a lighting designer with whom you're working for um, either the first or the second time, and, of course, Genevieve Lacey, with whom it's been the most delightful pleasure to sit and discuss this and many other things. Genevieve, it's always good to see you, and, uh, and I thank you again for being here today. You're so welcome, Paul. Lovely to talk. Thanks. Thank you for listening. You can find show notes for the episode on our website, musicaviva.com.au forward slash podcast. To learn more about our work and upcoming concerts, find us on Facebook by searching Music Aviva Australia and on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Music Aviva AU. Thanks again and see you next time.